0: the dulcet tones of the guitar fade into the background you are welcomed to another episode of the religious studies project with me Christopher Carter and him David Robertson what have we got this week chris well this week we've got James McGrath speaking with A David Lewis on religion science fiction
1: and doctor who wonderful take it away dave
2: and james okay james hello how are you today
3: Hi, it's good to be talking to
2: you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I, I wanted to start uh, appropriately enough by looking back. I know you are a man of many time streams, the future, the <laughs> present, uh, but let's start with the past, specifically 2011. 2011. Uh, In 2011, you edited and contributed to the collection Religion and Science Fiction, and I uh, very much recommend it to anyone who has not checked it out yet to certainly go and do that. Would you mind giving some background just how did that collection come to be? Uh, That is, what were you and the other contributors responding to in your respective disciplines that made the collection feel valuable?
3: That collection, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting backstory to it. Um, it really emerged out of conversations across disciplinary divides uh, with people who, at some point, were my colleagues, friends, uh, friends of friends, and the network seemed to keep branching out further and further. Uh, but people that I knew, and people that were uh, friends of people that I knew, you know, co-workers of people that I knew, acquaintances of people that I knew, uh, all sharing. A love of science fiction, all interested in the way science fiction and religion and their own discipline intersected,
4: mm-hmm. and so
3: we started talking about these subjects of common interest and realized that this is really a a fantastic area for interdisciplinary conversation and collaboration. And there really wasn't anything that was approaching the subject from this multitude of disciplinary perspectives, mm-hmm. so. Doing it in the study of literature and also talking about the religious aspect of that literature, or in film studies, or in religious studies, like any of those are things that might seem obvious. But there's a historical element. Um, there's even a musical element that ends up getting a musicologist involved. Uh, you can look at science fiction fandom from the perspective of an anthropologist. And there are so many different intersecting possible perspectives on this that it just sort of evolved naturally as I found myself talking with people about this common interest, and floated the idea what if we would actually put a volume together? Now, I would like to go on to say, um, now that the book's out, presumably it's okay to talk about this, but precisely because of the interdisciplinary character of this book, it was quite a struggle to find a publisher that would get on board with it. Hmm. Um, you know, because the question is, you know, well, are religious studies people going to buy it? You know, Are anthropologists going to buy it? Or, you know, is it gonna be you know one of these things where Murphy's law kicks into effect and it's like you've got something for everyone so of course no one's gonna actually buy the book. And so it was um, it
2: was ultimately published by Wipf and stock. Mm-hmm. Um, did you consult with a number of publishers before that or just have difficulty determining uh, which publishers and which uh, and what areas to target?
3: Oh I ran it um, actually ran it by a couple of publishers before that. And it was interesting, you know, when they looked into getting feedback on you know some of the proposal sample chapters, you'd get two different people with different disciplinary backgrounds saying sort of opposite things about the chapter. Huh. And so eventually what happened was, you know, I approached Whip and and I said, Okay, you're gonna send it out to readers, and I've got some readers suggest with various and here's what's gonna happen, right? Some of them are gonna say positive things about half the chapters and others and gonna say the other half are kind of weak or not as interesting. And the other person is inevitably going to say the exact same thing, but about the exact opposite chapter. And that actually happened. You
4: know? <laughs> uh,
3: and by that stage, it was predictable. Uh, so it's interesting. you know. We, we get a lot of encouragement uh, from you know, administrators, uh, from colleagues sometimes, uh, from different voices saying, be interdisciplinary, right? collaborate, have these conversations that, interact across the traditional divides. Uh, it's not always facilitated by some of our traditional approaches to publishing, I discovered,
4: right. where
3: very often a publisher has a niche you know, or they have a series that in for a particular niche. And so found that, you know, uh, what it actually took was telling like, OK, precisely because of this interdisciplinary character, which I think makes this book really valuable, what you're going to find is that people reading across their, dis, you know, away from, as they get further and further outside of their disciplinary um, expertise and what's familiar and the usual way of doing things for their discipline, the reaction is going to be different. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's to be expected. And, you know, when you, when you get that kind of feedback, uh, realize that it indicates something positive rather than something negative about the book.
2: So, um, so instead of at first seeing this book as having a benefit in having something for everyone or something to which everyone can stretch across their field to publishers were initially taking that as a detriment, uh, excuse me, were initially taking that as a detriment that they didn't see exactly precisely who this targeted, uh, exclusively.
3: I think there was an element of that, but I think it's also, uh, simply part of the experience of you know readers reading outside of, their field and the usual way of uh. doing things. Um, as an academic, you know, one of the things I've had um, privilege of doing from time to time is serving on committees. You know, where you read, let's say, you know, grant proposals or things like that from you know different uh, constituencies. And in religious studies itself, of course, this is a field, right? It's not a discipline. And so, mm-hmm. one reason why I thought this was a good place to bring these different disciplinary perspectives together is precisely because you know, in religion. You, know, you have people doing anthropological work in religion, you have people doing literary studies in relation to religion. And so it seemed a natural area to bring this intersection uh, into focus. But one of the things that often happens on these committees, you know, when academics are reading proposals or applications or whatever it happens to be, uh, is that you know, very often you, know, you need somebody with a different perspective, a different um, academic perspective, a different disciplinary perspective to actually say to you okay that may seem to you as a person with this uh, approach to things to be you know kind of vague but you know when you're going out and in anthropology doing field work and observing you know that's data collection and that's perfectly legitimate scholarship
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it
3: might it might seem a bit you know vague and nebulous if you're used to working in some other field but this actually is a really good proposal for anthropology. Um, and so interdisciplinary work, um, you know, comes up in a lot of practical ways for academics, you know, in administration and grants and all these things. And, you know, we, we really do need to um, find ways of branching out more and reading more beyond our field so that we understand that sometimes a different disciplinary approach has a completely different way of, you know, even formulating things, um, arguing things, making, making points and bringing
2: data together and presenting it and things of that sort mm-hmm. and it just uh, when the book when the book finally was produced, um, you included in your introduction that uh, you suggested the collection was, and I'm quoting you here a first step towards remedying uh, a situation. Uh, the situation of the gaps between different works of science fiction, the gaps between different subgenres, different themes and issues and different approaches, as you were just saying, uh, to and angles on the subject. Over the past two years, since this has come out, have you seen any, uh, progress towards narrowing, uh, towards narrowing or bridging those gaps? uh, Have responses to the collection at all contributed to some form of advance?
3: Yeah, well, academic conversations in print, at least, in traditional print venues, uh, are very slow and take a very long time. And so uh, it'll be some time until we get, let's say, the next book that is really interacting with this book, um, you know, so once a, um, once
2: again, we're talking about time and space being relative, and yeah. in, in in academic time, two years <laughs> or three years is not a very long time right. at all.
3: Right. That's right. that's why that's I mean maybe one of the reasons deep down why some academics like science fiction is that it allows you to imagine that you could travel you know hundred years in the future and see whether in the long run you're having an impact because in the short term ah. you don't always see the results of these things. Oh, I like that. That's true. That's true for academics. That's true for musicians. I think it was Gustav Mahler, wasn't it, who said that he wished he could conduct the uh, premiere of all his symphonies 50 years after his death. Um, <laughs> it's Usually, when you start to actually get appreciated, you know, if you're going to be appreciated at all. Um, if if he was right about that, and if it applies to religious studies as well as to composition, then we have a, I hope, um, a little while to wait. <laughs> um, so we'll reach
2: that point. Um, well, so okay then. So admittedly it's but, been a small window, but uh, yeah, has but a, have I you have seen, seen anything hopeful?
3: Well, I've certainly you know, it's it's opened further opportunities for dialogue, you know, and of course, you know, we found ourselves talking with one another uh, in relation to the subject. Uh, there is a relatively new uh, program unit, you know, at uh, in the American Academy of Religion focusing on religion and science fiction. And I've certainly seen different disciplinary approaches reflected there. Uh, I, and I've seen some interesting conversations emerging from that. And so I really do think that we are, uh, even though there have been some you know, some major works published, but I, I think we're still at the beginning of seeing the full extent of you know, what will be done by academics in relation to this, this broad field.
2: And once again, we have an interesting curve of uh – time-space, a wormhole. People can, uh, depending on what order in which they're listening to the podcast, they can either recall back to or look forward to the podcast we had with Gregory Grieve with his own views on uh, how religion and uh, popular culture is embracing science fiction. So, Looking inside the book, your contribution to the collection, what, to be fair, I called in a previous review, it's Oversized Heart, a building proposition that the rights and humanity of artificial intelligence needs to be considered in advance of its arrival. Uh, your contribution here drove all the way to questioning the existence of a human soul, or the possibility of a perfect Buddhist in the evolution of machine intelligence. Uh, it was heady. It was impressive. It was uh, going all the way to what is the state of the person, what do I de- we identify as the person, all the way to uh, considering and forecasting the civil rights of beings who may not yet be with us uh, or are on their way. What reaction have you gotten, if any, to the essay or where, when you've presented this material elsewhere? Uh, I'm also curious, uh, since the time this came out, where's your work on this gone in, in these subsequent years?
3: Uh, well, religion and science fiction really is a side interest for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose I should say that. Um, one of the privileges I have teaching where I do at Butler University, uh, we have a small program, and so I'm the Bible guy. Mm -hmm. You know, my main field is New Testament. But precisely because we're a small program, we have a limited number of faculty, and there are so many things in religion that it would be great if we had a course that touched on that. Uh, We're all given some opportunity, if we're so inclined, to branch out and to offer courses on things that we may work on. And so it was out of an interest in teaching a course on this that I actually found myself saying, well, if I'm going to teach on this, I'm also going to spend some time researching it, and I'm going to spend... Well, uh, I didn't know at that time just how much time I would find myself spending on these things. <laughs> okay, uh, but it's not—it's not as though you know my main field is you know, sort of um, Android ethics or something of that sort. Sure. But I found myself in conversations with people who think about these matters, uh, and it was fascinating. You know, um, I'm in a department of philosophy and religion, and we don't always have the same interests. You know, there are usually a couple people in the philosophy department who have. Similar interests with the religion folks, but they're also some who are like religion. Oh yeah, that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it makes for interesting, um, interesting relations. But we're all we all get along really, really well. You know, as a department as colleagues. Uh, but we don't always, you know, have an interest in talking about the same thing. Uh, but suddenly, I found myself talking with my colleague whose primary field is in ethics, and he does a lot in you know ethics related to war and warfare. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, he's noting that I've written on the subject and yeah, he's been working on this question because ethicists are working on the question as well, right? Because we're at the point where we're capable of creating and are beginning to create machines, which can kill other, you know, which can kill human beings. Mm -hmm. And at the moment we still kind of need to remote control them, but the extent to which they can be autonomous is, uh, it's near. And, It's near enough and it's possible enough, using current technology, that ethicists need to address these questions. Um, Is it ethical to create a killing machine? What kinds of constraints do you have to put on this thing before it even begins to fit within the ethics of warfare? And, of course, people disagree about whether there are any ethics of warfare. Uh, But even those who think that there is such a thing as ethical warfare have the question of, well, what happens with this? current technological possibility. Um, We used to have to point things and fire them at other people, Um, or push a button and hope for the best, but Mm -hmm. things are changing now technologically. And so even to the rudimentary extent that we have artificial intelligence, and we do call it that, even though it's fairly rudimentary, as a reality now, people are exploring the possibility. The military organizations are exploring the possibility of putting those things into machines that can kill people. And so uh, I really you know, have become more convinced than I was even then that I was right that this is something to think about before the full extent of what's possible is realized.
2: And you were particularly thinking about it in terms of the questions we've long had about the soul, uh, about uh, humans' relationship uh, to the ideal of beauty. Uh, to the idea of meaning. I mean, you don't keep it purely in the realm of ethics. Uh, I believe you tie it back to religion in some significant ways.
3: Yes, and my main interest was, you know, more of a, a religious, you know, maybe you know, philosophical theology, approaching it that way. Uh, even that, of course, is branching out a bit from some of the things I usually do in you know other areas of my field.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, but I was just giving, you know, the conversation with a colleague who's an ethicist as suddenly there was this point of uh, intersection between what I was doing and the kinds of things that he does. And so it was opening up yet other uh, interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm, I'm interested in the question, you know, and I think one of the things that is really useful about science fiction in relation to religion, uh, in relation to theology, in relation to philosophy is that it provides A wonderful uh testing ground for ideas right you can write a whole story that basically allows for a thought experiment and uh when i teach my course on uh, religion science fiction you know uh, i sometimes actually include a story of this sort uh daniel dennett wrote uh this basically it's a a philosophical thought experiment it's called where am i okay um some listeners may have come across this if so they've studied you know, uh, philosophy. But it's basically a science fiction short story where you have a brain being transplanted, you know, taken out of a person, you know, and the body controlled by remote control, and then the question of where is he, and then you know, they basically you know find a way of you know use duplicating the brain so that you know they've got a backup copy, and you have all these questions that it's possible to explore through a fictional sci-fi story of that sort that we can't get at as easily through any other means, right? So this allows you to ask the question of where does the human person reside?
4: Right? right.
3: If the brain and the body are separated, are you where you see yourself to be, right? Because your eyes are still transmitting the signal from there. And so if you look at yourself, you see yourself, you look at your arm and it's in this place wherever your body is. But if your brain is somewhere else, is that where you are? You yeah. know, it really is, you know, a useful thought experiment for getting at those questions of uh, personhood, of identity, uh, the kinds of things that philosophers think about and talk about. And so for religious believers and for those who study religion, uh, the question of human personhood, uh, questions about our free will. Uh, and you know, I think rather than denying the existence of the soul, there's lots of different things that one could mean by that. Um uh, I think really what I'm getting at is that in light of you know neuroscience, and light of other things, uh many people today think that if we're going to use the language of the soul at all, we need to think about such a such an aspect of human personhood differently than people sometimes have in the past.
2: I noticed that you're you're careful or more <laughs> careful to use the word soul than to use personhood, because soul comes with such a, a loaded connotation and such a history where personhood may feel a bit, what, cleaner, uh, maybe even more sterile?
4: Um,
3: don't know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think of personhood as sterile per se, but okay. I think that uh, there are plenty of people who would say there's no such thing as the soul,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, who would not say there's no such thing as a person.
2: Right, okay.
3: And yet, you know, the truth of the matter is that um, the notion of the soul was an attempt to get at a particular aspect of personhood. And so there's a sense in which, you know, taking, taking out some language that has maybe too much baggage for some people and substituting another term that has less of that may be useful. But there are many people who would say there's no such thing as the soul. And what they mean is there is no immaterial substance you know which itself sounds self-contradictory when you put it that way but <laughs> no no ethereal thing which is the real you that is separate from your brain activity and separate from the body and you know possibly connected by, via the pineal gland as you know was once um the, what was suggested but um you
2: know it doesn't I, work. <laughs> i'm i'm tempted uh i know Uh, I was looking towards my next question here, and it actually deals with uh, a a character, albeit a fictional character, who may well have a soul, but different personhoods. Uh, And uh, what I'm thinking of here is the title character to the Doctor Who series. And the reason uh, he comes to mind, uh, I noticed that uh, religion and science fiction actually lacked a lot of mention of Doctor Who, which is the British science fiction series uh, celebrating its 50th year currently. And it's also a frequent subject of your own exploring the matrix blood for patheos.com. Um, so first of all, I guess I'd put my unexpected question to you. Uh, does the science fiction of doctor who complicate what you're trying to establish between personhood and soul? Uh, does Doctor Who, as he regenerates, takes on different forms with each actor? Are they different persons in your opinion, with the same soul?
3: <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about science fiction, uh, Doctor Who has has an interesting relationship to uh, religion um, and religious ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll, we can talk about that in some detail, but branching out more broadly, right? Um, some would place doctor who, you know, within the stream of sort of humanistic science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in itself is interesting, right? Because the main character who gives voice to this humanism, so-called is not human. Right. right. And that makes things interesting. Right. So it's really sort of personism rather than humanism, right? It's, um, an appreciation for sentient beings. Entity,
2: sorts, entityism, right? maybe. Right?
3: Yeah, maybe, but it's, that's very cumbersome to say. And, um, Uh, So we call it humanism and of course, you know, kind of looks human and so we can sort of get away with it. Mm -hmm. But there's something very interesting just in the fact that, you know, the one who's giving voice to this thing that we might call humanism is not human. And that in itself, you know, raises some interesting questions that are worth exploring. Uh, But if you think about, you know, the other classic example of humanist science fiction is Star Trek. Right. Roddenberry was uh, very upfront about his humanism. And yet, there's lots of talk about the soul in that show,
4: right?
3: Um, question of whether androids have a soul, right? Whether, you know, Dr. Kirby, you know, who transferred himself into a, an Android body mm-hmm. in one episode, right? But they only find out that he was an Android towards the end. Sorry if I spoiled that for anyone, but you know, this is from the sixties. So, you know, you have plenty of chance to watch it.
2: It's about a 50 year right? spoiler. So right. I think that's yeah, okay.
3: So it's probably okay, but you never know. Some people get upset. So, um, so, um, Fortunately, time travel—they can go back in time and you know read some memories <laughs> on
4: it. That's right. But
3: you know the question of whether Doctor Kirby, you know Captain Kirk, I think it was, who says towards the end of the episode, Doctor Kirby was never here. Mm. And there's a lot of talk about the soul, right? His person seems to have been transferred, right? but there's a suggestion that something doesn't make it across, even if you copy. The brain pattern.
2: There's an irony there, of course, that since Star Trek features so much, uh, beaming, uh, teleportation, <laughs> uh, transportation, where the person is molecularly broken down, converted into some sort of energy information, and then reconstituted on the planet's surface, uh, by Kirk's own logic there, not to get on a total star trek nerd rant we have the problem uh we have the problem of uh is kirk actually on the enterprise or are we just getting clone after clone through uh-huh. the transporter of a soulless cl- uh, kirk or of a uh duplicated kirk that has the soul reattach itself
3: yeah and even if you take the soul out of it um, mm-hmm. uh, the question of you know this is something you know those who want to live longer. You know, it's an ongoing existence, right, that has continuity with yourself. Very few of us would say, okay, if I can have a copy of myself live for a whole other lifespan, uh, I won't mind that I experience ceasing to exist at this point. Uh, Very few people would probably go for that choice. Right. Uh, And so the question of whether in making a copy, you know, via a transporter, you know, really what you're doing is you're making a copy, right, and on one end you're ceasing to exist, Right. It um, doesn't seem like a while, you know, I think maybe we should actually be more sympathetic with Dr. McCoy saying, I don't want to get in this thing. I don't want my atoms scrambled <laughs> all over the universe. You know. right. um, there's, there's a good philosophical objection to getting into a transporter.
2: And in the later Star Trek series and Star Trek The Next Generation, we have that same um, hesitation or concern expressed as a phobia, I think. There's uh, Lieutenant Barclay. Who has a, a phobia is scared of actually getting on transporters. A, sort of an existential dread that even though the technology seems to work from everyone, for everyone it rarely goes awry. Uh, he is can't explain why it strikes so at the center of him to want to avoid that one piece of technology, and he's an engineer.
3: Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, Riker being, you know, we, we find out that at one point in his life he was duplicated, right, because... <laughs> Thomas Riker, pattern, right, right, yeah. Yeah, um, ends up using a different name, right, using a middle name, but, you know, basically another copy of the same person, right? So presumably if you can make multiple copies using this technology, then it's really, it's, it's a copy, right? It's mm-hmm. not something that gets you continuously from one point to another. So again, you know, it's... It's really a, a philosophical thought experiment, and science fiction is great for this sort of thing.
2: Well, you, you've driven us uh, from the topic. I we yeah, got I'm into sorry. we got into a Star Trek conversation, and I wanted to direct us to actually a Doctor Who conversation for I, for good I reason. Trans-
3: yeah, I transported us, and I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> you did. You you pushed us into a parallel reality.
3: Yeah, I beamed us elsewhere. Yeah.
2: So let's start for people who may not be entirely adept with the Doctor Who phenomenon it's uh, gone it's a series that has gone on start and stop for 50 years with a variety of actors playing the the lead role uh and a number of different uh a huge number of different writers and crews and casts if hypothetically you were challenged by a Patheos editor for whom you write uh a great deal about Doctor Who if you were challenged by a pathos editor to explain why you pay so much attention to the what the presumably humanist television show about a time-traveling alien do-gooder in a blue box. What would you say to that challenge? Uh,
3: Knowing me, I'd probably make some sort of Doctor Who quip and say that the show is actually bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Um, And that would probably just get me into trouble, but I'd probably say it nevertheless uh, before I thought better on it. Uh, but I do think that TV shows, you know, uh, they reflect the time in which they're produced, mm-hmm. you know, as well as influencing it. And so there's there's something special about having the opportunity to look at uh, a, a phenomenon in pop culture across multiple decades.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it really does allow us to look and see. Okay, so we see these changes, right, from the original, you know first season, let's say, or first few seasons of a show to 50 years later, what they're doing now. Uh, Or we see continuities or, you know, what do we see? Uh, We're often looking for ways to trace cultural trends and looking at something which is trying to be a continuous phenomenon and yet is trying to constantly renew itself and reinvigorate itself. It it gives us a good opportunity to look at that sort of thing.
2: But more so... Doctor Who, then say the James Bond movies, or then say an ongoing soap opera, more so Doctor Who in terms of religion than Doctor Who in terms of, uh, cultural politics or, or gender studies. What makes Doctor Who and religion, uh, line up as nicely as it does for this longitudinal, uh, longitudinal Study longitudinal watch. Uh,
3: well, what makes it viable for me, of course, is that I happen to enjoy it. Um, that know, helps. So, you know, you can do that with you know other things as well. Arguably, um, and you know, who knows? You know, if, if we get fifty years of The Simpsons, then looking at that might tell us you know um, certain things. Uh, we're watching. Early- we're
2: seeing yeah. the beginning of the field of Simpsonology right now. We're living in. We're living in the early decades of Simpsonology
3: when we didn't really. Grasp how important it was going to be. <laughs> some okay. Some future point. Or who knows? Um, but I mean, apart from that, it's it's science fiction. Science fiction, you know, means that you don't necessarily have to be realistic. And if there's one thing that Doctor Who, um, you know, it's it's accused of many things. Realism uh, is not always one of them. Um, you know, a soap opera, of course, may not be realistic. I mean, mm-hmm. how many how many twin siblings can kind a of person have that die and then, you know, back on the show again in the future episode. Right. Um, but Doctor Who has this interesting relationship to religion. Um, you know, because it's asking about religion from time to time from a variety of perspectives, right? I mean, early in the show's history, you have the time travelers, you know, the doctor and his, com- his human companions who are with him um, arrive amid the ancient Aztecs. Can you change their history? Can you get them to stop sacrificing human beings? You know, these questions that are sort of unique to a time travel scenario, right? Um, and it's asking the question whether you can tamper with history and do so effectively and, you know, just to create paradoxes and those sorts of general questions. But it gives you a chance to ask, you know, what's the appropriate perspective of someone from our time? The 60s as a right? <laughs> right. Um, I should, you know, I assume this is not going to be um, broadcast in the 60s, but it's going to be broadcast. Yeah, so
2: it, um, I, it is not yeah. knowingly at this point <laughs> going to be retro broadcast into right. the 60s. No.
3: <laughs> Only a Doctor Who fan would be concerned about that. Yeah. Story, exactly. Probably, right? uh, but you know, what's the appropriate perspective of someone in our time looking at ancient ritual? and mm-hmm. ancient religious behavior. You know, so that's one, you know, one of the kinds of scenarios that can come up. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting on Doctor Who, and one thing that I often make a point of commenting on because it's interesting, right, there are moments in the show's history when the Doctor really seems consistently to talk about superstition, right, mm-hmm. and to take a, a scientific view of things and to sound dismissive of um, you know, religion and ritual and those sorts of things. And yet what's very interesting right, is that oftentimes you actually get these entities about which, you know, beliefs are said to be superstitious. And yet those entities actually appear as literal beings on the show. Right? Um, can think about uh, the episode, you know, John Pertway's era, The Third Doctor's era. Mm-hmm. Seem to be characterized by that sort of rhetoric about religion, uh, interestingly enough, and yet has a couple of shows, right? The daemons, in which you have these beings who are actually aliens from another world, but apparently, you know, as a result of their visiting Earth, when people saw powerful beings, you know, that were capable of amazing things with horns, they weren't hallucinating, you know, they weren't making stuff up. They were describing what they actually saw.
2: And so does so, that does that does that episode at least uh, the Damon episode does that legitimize religious belief, saying these people are not just whacked out coming up with crazy stories, or does it delegitimize it by saying, look, the faith you had in something that was supernatural is actually just super scientific that these were that these were real. Uh, but they were alien and are not necessarily spiritually aligned with any goal you may have uh, associated with them?
3: Well, that's exactly the pertinent question. Okay. Um, From one perspective, it might seem that this is a, these religious beliefs are literally true. Um, And although, I mean, Doctor Who is not, you know, lots of science fiction, you know, it's not just Doctor Who, is not being consistently scientific in these things. Mm Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if it were proven that ancient people saw these beings, right, and of course we could again go over to Star Trek, right, with uh, Apollo, right, and the (laughs) Enterprise crew encounter with him, right, these people actually had the literal experiences. Mm -hmm. People who study religion skeptically, you know, professionally, um, you know, taking a a secular, you know, scholarly approach to these things, are not going to say that, you know, these people in the past, we can somehow conclude that they actually – encounter these beings, and these are literal descriptions of you know, experiences that they have. And so these shows, which are dismissive of religion and superstition, are also saying this is literally true to an extent that one type of skepticism would not say. And I think that's just fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, if people are uh, interested in following this line of thought or other approaches to looking at Doctor Who through a religious lens. Uh, you and Andy Chrome uh, have a book out, "Time and Relative Dimensions and Faith." And uh, Andy, uh, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, there was recently a conference at the University of Manchester uh, on Doctor Who that I believe was led by your your co editor uh, Andy Chrome. What direction are people pushing? Uh, different thoughts with this character, particularly the what some people call the new Who—the recent seasons that have come out uh, in the in the 21st century, featuring Chris Eccleston, uh, David Tennant, and Matthew Smith. Are they seeing religion presented in a particular way with these three, and now a, a new incarnation uh, of the Doctor post Matt Smith?
3: I think we're seeing everything that uh, one might have expected, given the history of science fiction in our Mm. time Mm -hmm. uh, and religious perspectives on that and religious studies perspectives on that. Uh, There have been church conferences looking at the use of Doctor Who as a tool for spreading the faith, expressing one's own faith, just as we've seen in the past with yeah, you know, things like Star Wars, right? Where there are lots of people who wrote books about you know Star Wars and whatever their faith tradition was, uh, oftentimes simply yeah you know, looking for Christ figures or um, using a film or a TV show as a parable, you know, for making some sort of spiritual point.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: but we've seen that we've seen the show popular with critics of religion, um, and of course there have been some great speeches in recent seasons and recent episodes. Uh, giving voice to, again, what we might call, for one of a better term, um, uh, this humanistic vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes put very poetically and very beautifully by the show. Right?
2: One that comes, and- uh, one that comes to mind is that when we have an a powerful. I mean, he has powers beyond that of your average human, Uh, when we have a powerful last of the Time Lords, final alien Time Lord, he becomes a sort of a little god, or a sad and lonely god, as I think some of the characters have occasionally referred to the Doctor.
3: Yes, and what's interesting is that even someone like Richard Dawkins, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes, you know, for rhetorical flourish, we'll say things like, you know, as an atheist disbelieves in any and all gods, any shape or form, anywhere they may be found, you know, no such thing. Right? Uh, but sometimes, you know, when he's being a bit more nuanced in his speech, we'll say that beings like the Doctor or like Q from Star Trek or, you know, entities that are powerful, but not all powerful, which in... The religious context that's you know of a sort that used to be you know or sometimes called polytheism these beings deserve to be called gods there's mm. no obvious reason to deny such a being that title right and so the question of you know where does that lead? i mean is science fiction making room for you know sort of a, a new polytheism as it were um, of course there's an acknowledgement among most fans, I won't say all because we've all encountered those exceptions, but most fans know this is fiction. Right? <laughs> um, it's not always the case that people thinking about their own mythology um, view it in that way. Um, although, sometimes storytellers and readers have been far more nuanced, you know, even in ancient times, than some have given them credit for. Uh, but that's another subject. Mm-hmm. But even appreciating these stories as fiction, right, um, they're exploring a cosmos that seems plausible to us. And in some cases that we, we hope will be the case, right? That there'll be other beings out there. That's not just a big, dark, cold void, you know, punctuated with bright lights, but really with no other life. We hope that in this vast cosmos, just as we find connections that are meaningful on earth, that that process might continue you know, and involve you know, other entities you know, and, and involve other worlds. And as we think about those kinds of things, we, we, ex, we give expression to them in our storytelling. And so even on that level alone, there's something that's parallel and related to you know, ancient myth and ancient religious storytelling.
1: Thanks to James McGrath and especially thanks to A. Dave Lewis for that. I think it's the final one in our current series with uh, Dave Lewis, but I will be emailing him Soon to see if we can get some more interviews from him because yeah. I've enjoyed these a lot.
0: Exactly, it's great to have someone who's sort of fully ensconced in the religion and pop cultural studies milieu, um, producing some excellent work
1: for it. Indeed, we've got another series, or possibly serieses, coming up after our summer break, which will be from the end of June probably. Um, But we'll tell you more about them once we've actually got a few of them in the can. Let's not jinx ourselves. (laughs)
0: Um, It's a big moment, listeners, next week. Um, It's something we've been waiting for for a long time. It's something that was probably inevitable, written in the stars from the moment that the Religious Studies Project was founded, back in May 2011, when David and I sat down and had a beer and tried to work out what each other's gameplay was. Um, I've interviewed and what was wrong with religious studies yeah.
1: internationally.
0: <laughs> I've interviewed David um, on his uh, new book um, which came out in January. Um, what's the book called David?
1: It's called UFOs, Conspiracy Theories in the New Age subtitled Millennial Conspiracism. Wonderful. And that's from Bloomsbury.
0: Um, So I've done my usual titling with the interview and called it UFOs, Conspiracy Theories and Religion.
1: And Religion. I think it should have been called A Taste of Your Own Medicine.
0: Perhaps. (laughs) Um, David does very well. You know, he only messes up like five times.
1: Um, If you're a regular listener of the Religious Studies Project, you'll know that every week we put out a response to the podcast, or almost every week, we we always try. And um, we're looking for new respondents If you want to be a respondent for the Religious Studies Project, and this is open to anyone, undergraduates, um, postgraduates, even, um, you know, senior scholars, if you like, um, drop us an email to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and we'll add you to our pool of respondents. And you'll receive special secret behind-the-scenes emails from our uh, features editor, Kevin Whitesides, telling you of all the interviews that we have in the can that are coming up down the pipe. So a little peek behind the curtain of the RSP and we hope that you'll join our respondents' pool. We need fresh blood.
0: Yeah. And this is not to say that our current respondent pool um, is in in any way, you know, we're not sort of cutting folk out. Um, Just as the project has grown and as people's own projects have grown, people get busier and busier. Um, So... We're looking to add some new, new names to the list, um, A, to bring a fresh approach, but B, um, folk who might have a bit more time on their
1: plate um, at the moment. Absolutely, because all of our writers who, that we started off with, obviously the success of the Religious Studies Project has meaning that they're all highly in demand. Exactly. nowadays. Um, so
0: I think we've already mentioned... Basser, Nasser, and Asser. Uh, but I've just mentioned them again. But should also say, um, don't forget about all our links. Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes. Remember about our amazon.co.uk.com and .ca links if you're buying stuff. It doesn't cost you anything more, but we get a nice bit of the pie.
1: Make Amazon give some of their profits to supporting Initiatives like the RSP, that's what I say too. Exactly, exactly. But other than that, Chris, anything you'd like to say to the audience? Just thanks for listening. <laughs>